The following episode of Scream Scene deals with Germany during the period of Nazi rule. The episode may contain humor and mocking at Nazi expense, as well as use of terminology contrived by Nazis that has since been debunked. This is not intended and should not be construed in any way to make light of, condone, glorify, or endorse the beliefs, ideologies, events, actions, persons, or behavior of the Nazi regime, or to trivialize its war crimes, genocide, and other crimes against humanity. Hello, and welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order, review and rank them from best to worst. I'm Ben. And I'm Sarah. How you doing today, Sarah? Doing pretty good. I just finished my first full week at the new job, mm-hmm. and it's going well, but start time is at like 8.30 in the morning, and I'm really not used to that, and it's, it's something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you'll get used to it. Yeah. What about you? How are you? I'm doing very well. We uh, recently just put up a piece of horror fiction on our Patreon, uh, which is available for uh, patrons pledging at the $10 level and up, and it's a short piece of historical fiction that I wrote. So, you know, it's still spooky, for sure, um, but if a spooky story about Richard the Lionheart and Philip Augustus sounds up your alley then definitely head on over to our Patreon and uh, pledge $10 and check it out. <laughs> yeah, it, it had kind of a gothic horror, like traditional gothic horror feeling to it. It was cool. Oh, thank you. If you want to check it out, that's patreon.com slash podcast. What are we watching today? Well, Sarah, today we are watching The Student of Prague. <laughs> We've already watched this twice. Yeah. This is the third version. <laughs> is, it our, is it our very last version? I think it's the last version. Yeah, and then, and then after that, we'll just be watching remakes of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre forever. <laughs> you know, America's student of Frog. Is it? <laughs> yeah, sort of. No. I could make a case if you gave me time. Sure. Uh, yeah, this is the 1935 remake of Student of Prague, um, which means it has some interesting attributes that previous versions didn't, most notably sound, uh, since both of the previous versions were silent. Um, and also, uh, since it's from 1935 and it's a German film, that means it was produced during the era of Nazi Germany. Yeah, the last time we were in Germany, it was 1932. It was with that year's version of Unheimliche Geschichten, mm-hmm. Eerie Tales. If you want to check out that episode, it's episode 32B. 32B because we couldn't find the film, found the film, and then the film got taken down. It will be on our YouTube playlist if it is available, but it kind of comes and goes in its availability. <laughs> yeah. Uh, in that episode, the last I had covered with German history was uh, the end of 1932 with the Nazi and Communist parties gaining popularity. Um, to kind of remind you about that year, there were two elections in 1932, the latter in November, resulting in a 33% minority of seats to the Nazi party. Still kind of the biggest party at the time, but... Minority government. Minority government. Hitler was set to become chancellor, and the official ceremony occurred in 1933 at the end of January. 
this was the culmination of what's kind of called or described with like capital letters the seizure of control which all started in 1931 mm -hmm. you could argue earlier with hitler's beer hall pushed all of that stuff with hitler's appointment the seizure of power was achieved and the nazi party set to work on what they called Gleichschaltung, uh, which would mean coordination, synchronization, bringing into line. Uh, really, it just is a German word to describe Nazification. Yeah, and things move pretty quickly after that, don't they? Yeah, about uh, six months-ish. Mm -hmm. So this Gleichschaltung, uh was to establish a system of totalitarian control over everything, from economy and trade to media, culture, and education. By June, so really less than six months, more like five months, only the military and churches, uh, specifically like Catholic or Protestant churches, were not under Nazi control. Mm -hmm. They first targeted trade unions, looked at community organizations, education boards, kind of every other thing. Yeah, and, and, and anything that might skew towards opposing them, right? So education, unions, that kind of thing. Totally. You know, and the fact that they left the military and the churches alone partially was because generally if you want to be a dictator, don't screw with the military. And also, you know, the backlash if you were seen attacking like the churches would be bad. But it's also partially because those were organizations that would already be inclined to heavily right-wing views in a way that trade unions and education boards and stuff would not be in theater organizations. I mean, maybe a little bit, but they definitely targeted the church after this. Yeah, oh yeah, eventually they did, for sure. No, like, later this year. Okay. Like, it, it's just by five months, you know, they had done everything else. Mm -hmm. Then it's like, okay, let's take on the church. Yeah. So while I see the point you're making, I, I don't know if, it quite, if I quite fully agree. Hmm. Here in our story, with this Nazification of German culture happening, is where one Josef Goebbels formally enters our story. Okay. And he enters our story as head of the Reich Ministry of Public Enlightenment and Propaganda. Right. Because that doesn't sound terrifying at all. <laughs> Paul Josef Goebbels was born October 29th, 1897, and would go on to earn a PhD in 1921, writing his dissertation on Wilhelm von Schotz, who is a minor 19th century romantic dramatist. And nothing says, like, yeah, I don't know what to do. <laughs> like writing a dissertation on some minor German poet. What was his PhD in? Like drama? Like Basically, theater studies? Like literature kind of stuff. Right, okay. Yeah. Post-grad, he tried his hand at writing books and plays, never finding much success. Mm -hmm. His first exposure directly to Hitler and Nazism came in 1924, though he had long had an interest in Volkisch, which is a very strong belief in, like, going back to the folk roots of Germany. Yeah. And really heavily influences Nazism. Yeah, it's like, it's like a folk movement... Except that, like, I feel like in North America, folk festivals and folk movements are often seen as being, like, kind of left-wing. And this is, like, a very right-wing version of that. It's kind of like, no, the folklore shows us our true German heritage. 
Germany for Germans kind of idea, and that's how it bleeds into Nazism. Yeah, and it's it's that sort of the old days were better kind of, you know, weaponized nostalgia. Totally. In 1924, Goebbels was hired to work with Gregor Strasser in northern Germany for the Nazi party, working on their weekly newspaper and as a secretary. You know, got a PhD and you're working as a secretary. Well... Going to be poking fun at Goebbels a little bit. By 1926, he had gained favor and trust to run the Berlin Nazi party headquarters, basically, uh, where he had power over Stromabteilung and Schutzstaffel, the SA and the SS. Right, sure, yeah, the brown shirts and the black shirts. Yeah, and he would provoke street fights with the Communist Party mm-hmm. and use these fights to get support for the Nazi Party. Yeah, they would they would provoke the Communists into, like, fights and riots on the street and then use that as proof that Communists were violent and should be outlawed. Um, yeah. Which uh, is kind of a familiar tactic in today's world. Is it? Yeah, it's something that, like, um, alt-writers do to provoke uh, Antifa activists in order to show that Antifa are violent and need to be, like, policed oh. against. I was I was thinking, like, I, I don't hear about communism in the news, so... <laughs> I, <laughs> wrong, wrong side of things. Oh. His Berlin newspaper was uh, called Der Angriff, The Attack, and it was an aggressive anti-Semitic and anti-communist newspaper. Breitbart. <laughs> and he had, around this time, around 126 libel suits against him. <laughs> yeah, for sure. That's going to happen. He was already used to using, you know, events or things like that as a tool for propaganda, such as uh, the death of the SA troop leader known as Horst Wessel. Uh, Wessel was taken as a martyr. Uh, he died during, like, a riot with communists, um, and people rallied behind his image, and the anthem that kind of started with this guy, Horst Wessellied, uh, is later taken as like a second national anthem for Nazi Germany. Yeah. So Goebbels started that. Mm-hmm. April 1930 saw Goebbels made Reich leader of the Nazi party's propaganda. Uh, in 1933, with Hitler's chancellor appointment, Goebbels organized torchlit marches with uniformed SA and SS members coupled with a live radio broadcast and commentary by a longtime well-liked party member. Mm-hmm. Radio, like, yes, he's, he's pretty big in film, and of course we're talking about his film, relation, his relationship to film in this episode, but it's, it's radio that he really loved, it seems, that he relied on the most, at least. Well, yeah, because it was broadcast, right? Like, if you want to control people... You know, the problem with film is people have to choose to get up and go to the theater. Mm-hmm. You know, radio, you're in, your, in their homes. Uh, the Nazis had closed-circuit television in, like, the late 30s. It wasn't in your home, but they had it, like, in public squares in Berlin, and you could go and watch TV, and, of course, it would be showing, you know, Nazi broadcasts. But, you know, that's how dedicated he was to figuring out how to get, you know, his cultural propaganda out. Totally. Instead of being appointed Minister of Culture in Hitler's cabinet in February, Goebbels' appointment came a month later to the Reich Ministry of Public Enlightenment and Propaganda. I feel like, like, I mean, those are the same thing as far as the Nazis are concerned, right? Culture and propaganda? 
Yeah, yeah, Hitler likes to pit people against each other. Like, that's also why he kind of chose someone else for the cultural minister mm -hmm. position. But then, for reasons I didn't really, like, go into with my notes, Goebel kind of, like, was like, no, like, really, I'm really good, and, like, did a couple of really good things, and so then Hitler was like, yeah, okay, I'll throw you a bone. Right, yeah, and it's, it's keeping people competing with each other. Exactly. With the process of Lei Shaltung, um, the process of Nazification, this ministry was key in communicating and enforcing Nazi ideology. Uh, they achieved this by centralizing control over all aspects of mass media, whether that was news media, literature, art, music, radio broadcasting, or film. This is why when people say that totalitarian governments lead to better art, it's like, mm, no, no, because they take over the art. Exactly. Uh, actually, there's this funny anecdote that I came across where, um, to kind of show, like, how, like, bad all that other art was, they held a, um, an exhibit, I forget what they called the art, but it was something bad, uh, called Degenerate Art, and, like, admission was free, so that's one reason why it was popular, but, like, admission just soared, and Goebbels was like, Oops. <laughs> yeah. Because everyone was like, yeah, let me see you something else. Mm -hmm. uh, and that whole thing backfired, but kind of funny. And we've talked in like earlier episodes where we've covered German silent cinema, like how many times have we mentioned, oh, and this film's lost and this film's lost because they burnt all these movies. Yeah. All the degenerate, non-Nazi. Old culture. Old culture. It's too bourgeois. Mm -hmm. It's too bougie. It's too Jewish. Yeah, they use bougie and Jew, and also somehow, like, communism equals Jewish. Yeah, if you, were, if you had money, you were probably Jewish, and if you were a communist, you were probably Jewish. The only people who weren't Jewish were, like, good, hard-working, blue-collar folk people. Yeah. So by centralizing control over mass media, Hitler both kind of spontaneously, but also a little bit with Goebbels' hands it, meddling, with it, a cult of personality developed around Hitler. Right. A common tactic of Goebbels was uh, to have rallies and speeches be a production, like a really big mm -hmm. affair, and to film and also broadcast that production across the country. Probably one of the best examples, though there are many, uh, was 1935's Triumph de Villain. Yeah. Triumph of the Will. Mm-hmm which is a film that showcases the 1934 Congress and Nuremberg rally. Yeah, it's also something that you might see if you go to film school because its techniques are considered worth studying, even if, like, obviously the content's despicable. Yeah, it's kind of one of those tough choices, like Birth of a Nation, of, like, do we show this because of, like, what it does in terms of, like, film history or film technique? Or is its content so deplorable that you're just, I can't handle it? Well, and exactly. Um, even in the context of the content being bad, it's, it's almost worth it just so that you can understand how propaganda is used and what the methods of propaganda are, you know, even if you don't like it. Um, but it's also something that sort of found its way into culture in really weird places, like um, the final medal ceremony in Star Wars Episode Four is shot for shot from Triumph of the Will. Mm -hmm. Film had actually been of interest and in the use of the Nazis 
since 1930, when the party first established a film department. Okay. Um, but now, Goebbels was able to direct film policy for the entire industry. So rather than just doing like these little indie films, <laughs> he can now kind of be like, no, everything's going to be like this. Yeah. And I mean, it's sort of like, you know, using film early on when it was a fairly, you know, even it's still a fairly new medium. Totally. Um, and finding ways to use new mediums that are more likely to hit more people is, you know, a very effective political tactic. You know, doing that in the 30s is like the equivalent of using um, Twitter or the internet today, where it's a type of media that is going to more likely hit people than old traditional forms of media. Totally, yeah. In the process of Nazifying... Sure. <laughs> uh, Nazifying the industry, the film industry was nationalized, and a state-run film school was established, as well as membership to an official professional organization known as Reichsfilmkammer was made mandatory. Mm -hmm. um, there were other things that they did to encourage films that would be, um, at the very least, uh, if not sympathetic to Nazis, then at least serving as uh, serving the policies that were put forward. Um, so, for example, negotiation of contracts was done through the government, through this office. Um, there was an establishment of a film credit bank that would offer tax credits and also funding to films that you know, fit in line with what Goebbels' policies were. And these policies, kind of philosophically, the approach Goebbels took was that film should provide escapism and be entertaining mm -hmm. so as to kind of distract from, like, how awful the world might be outside those theater doors. Yeah, for sure. And it's kind of interesting to think about that because, like, you might be thinking, ah, now they have the, the entire industry. It's just all propaganda all the time. But Goebbels was clever in that he recognized that things need to be entertaining as well. And so while there were explicit propaganda films, ultimately they actually make up less than a sixth of the films produced during yeah. this period. Yeah, because if it was all propaganda all the time, people would just stop going. Yeah, they would tune out. Mm -hmm. This official professional organization called Reichsfilmkammer it's a subsidiary, basically, of the Reichskulturhammer, which is the Reich Chamber of Culture. Mm -hmm. And depending on what medium you were working in, uh, there was a, an organization for that. So if it was like, this isn't, <laughs> the translations here aren't qu quite right, but it, if you were working in news, it would be like Reich's News Camera. Yeah, yeah. You yeah. know, like uh, it was just like Reich's, Reich's, medium Reich's camera. Music Camera. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And the Reich Chamber of Culture was established in September 1933, so right early on in the Nazification of the country. Reich's film camera was called RFK for short, and like I mentioned, membership was mandatory. Mm -hmm. if, you're, if you couldn't get membership, you were banned from working in that industry. Yeah. And between, you know, the RFK banning some 3,000 people from being employed... And the amount of people we've seen fleeing Germany before the Nazis rise to power. Yeah, how many times have I 
said, oh, and then this person fled Germany or whatever in yeah. previous episodes. To recall a few that we've mentioned, Conrad Veidt, Peter Lorre, Fritz Lang, Michael Curtiz, and that's just, like, the people who were working in horror, mm-hmm. you know? Like, there were a ton. So the industry was in a bit of a tight, tough spot. So in the years after this film, they tried to reestablish kind of a star system, uh, bring back some of that glamour, because so many people have left. Yeah, if you look at, you know, the kinds of people that Nazis don't like, leftists, Jewish people, um, LGBT people, you know, et cetera, et cetera, and then you look at the type of people who go into the entertainment industry, there's a very large overlap. So if you're super into movies and you're a Nazi, it causes problems with, like, who are, who's going to be in your movies, man? Yeah, and I remember when we first watched, you know, I think it was the 1926 Student of Prague, where we had Conrad Veidt playing Baldwin, and the actor who was playing the devil, basically, mm-hmm. or like whoever. Scapinelli. Scapinelli. You mentioned how Conrad Veidt like, got the heck out of Germany, but the Scapinelli actor stayed and like continued working. Yeah, Werner Krauss. Werner Krauss. And even Paul Wigner, like we mentioned him, how he stayed, and he would have had to get membership to this organization, but he was still, like, offering refuge to those persecuted. Mm -hmm. But what I'm trying to get at is that because, you know, the industry might be in a kind of a tight, tough spot, they might have been a bit more lenient with some people to kind of, like, no, you're a big enough name, we actually need you to stay so we can make movies, we'll, yeah. we'll give you the membership. Yeah, I think there was a few cases I can think of, of, you know, even uh, Jewish performers who were sort of grandfathered in or given like a, a seal of approval just to keep them around. Yeah, and it's probably good to note that probably the people who were given kind of a stamp of approval or grandfathered in would be actors rather than behind the scene crew yeah where like you wouldn't have like a name or or a face to give your name power or something yeah totally totally um yeah reinhold uh reinhold schunzel uh who was conrad veidt's co-star in the original unheimlich Mm -hmm. geschichten from 1919 he was jewish uh but he was such a popular big name actor that they gave him the title of honorary aryan so that he could continue working yeah and i mean I remember when you mentioned that in that episode, and I was like, really? I, that doesn't strike me as something Nazis would do, but having an idea of what the pragmatic side of, like, we need people to star, I can mm-hmm. see why, why they would possibly do that. And there was certainly, like, in the Nazi party, there was almost a continuing conflict between what I would call the more philosophical side of the party that was into, you know, the Teutonic stuff and the, and the, the weird... Aryan cultish stuff and then like the pragmatic side of the party that was just about like no let's just get power and stay in power and whatever we need to do to do that is what we'll do ironically i think goebbels was a bit of a bit of both but more on the pragmatic side and hitler himself was more on the pragmatic side he thought that all of the like um you know teutonic german mythic cult stuff which uh himmler was really into he thought all that was just gobbledygook and it was basically just stuff being put out to give the masses something to believe in yeah with goebbels he was like urging hitler to do total war and was like totally uh pushing for and happy about the holocaust 
mm -hmm. uh, things like that. Another thing that the Reich Chamber of Culture did, um, so we, we've kind of talked about how journalism and other media industries went through the establishment of this professional organization where, you know, membership is mandatory. Um, in relation to film, journalism underwent a similar uh, process and Goebbels actually abolished film criticism in 1936. Oh, that's really interesting. Replacing it with what's called film beobachtung, which is film observation, <laughs> where you would describe the content, but there's no critique, there's no editorializing on its artistic merits. This sort of reminds me of people on the internet who come to critics of, like, video games or movies or whatever, and they're like, well, this should be an objective review. And it's like, what the hell's an objective review? I guess this is what it is, right? Yeah, it feels like when you read a thing and it's, you read an article and it's just like a recap yeah. of the film rather than like interacting with the piece of media. Yeah. I yeah. liked your review, critic. You didn't say anything about the movie's content. Well, they're not a critic, they're an observer. An observer, yeah. Now, kind of like what I was saying a little bit earlier, Goebbels was intensely anti-Semitic and with him leading these cultural policies and organizations, these beliefs are reflected in Nazi Germany's mass media. Mm -hmm. um, if not explicitly, it's like it filters through. Yeah, for sure. Right? Um, so today's film probably has some of that anti-Semitic content. But who knows? We haven't, we haven't, we haven't seen, seen this version. Exactly. So um, if not all of the films coming out of the Reichsfilmkammer were propaganda, um, did you sort of see anything talking about, like, what kind of movies Goebbels liked? Oh, it was all fluff, you know? Like, entertaining, escapist things. Like, I don't know if they had a term for this, but, like, you'd think dramatic rom-coms. Right, costume dramas, that kind of Probably stuff. Probably comedies. Yeah. You know, and I remember when we... I forget when we talked about this, but it was in another German Germany episode where... We talked about how Nazi Germany was like, no horror. Horror just causes dread. And we've seen that belief in like the Hollywood production code as well. Mm -hmm. And Nazi Germany wanting to have something where people can go to escape, not face some of that horrific dread. Yeah, I mean, like horror is about, in a lot of ways, and we've, we've said this over and over on the show, it's about putting up a mirror to, you know, the problems in society and exposing people's anxieties about the world they live in and giving people sort of a space where they can engage with those anxieties in like a safe space, basically. Mm. Um, and if you're creating, you know, the, the Reich that will last a thousand years for the master race, philosophically speaking, you know, you don't want to say that that society has any flaws and no one should have any anxiety about living in it. So... There is no need for horror movies, and if anything, they would just cause undue stress in the population. Yeah, because, like, the difference between a horror movie and, like, an action movie right. is the hero comes out on top mm -hmm. in an action movie. In mm -hmm. horror, it's a bit more who knows. And if you're wanting, like you said, like, hold up the mirror and see, like, come face to face with, like, the bad parts of yourself, to Nazi Germany, that's Jewish people, that's gay people. That's Romani people. Mm -hmm. And we're just shuffling them off. Yeah, they don't exist. To, yeah, yeah, exactly. And at the very least, they are, they are overcome. Yes. You know, so we are the heroes to yeah. last a thousand years. So that's the kind of films that 
besides propaganda films, these fluffy escapist films were what, what was being pumped out. And stuff that probably speaks to, like, the Volkish movement stuff that you were talking about earlier, right? Like, you know, movies about uh, common folk in the country wearing lederhosen. Yeah. Speaking of that, Sound of Music is very interesting in this context. <laughs> Anyways. Heidi. Heidi is a Volkish movie. Oh, totally. Yeah. Totally. Um, and that, like, caveat to all of this, these films aren't fluffy, folklorish, like, escapist films aren't bad. Mm-hmm. We're just saying this was how they were used by the Nazi regime. Yeah, for sure. With all of this said, I'm not entirely sure why Student of Prague was chosen to be remade. Mm. Um, in general, the Reichsfilmkammer didn't like horror as a genre, as we've said. So it's possible that maybe it was just seen as, like, this was a popular film, you know, there hasn't been a sound adaptation of it, we should do it in sound. There also might have been a bit of the fact that, like, if you look at who made the 1926 version, that was written and directed by Henrik Galeen, who was Jewish. It starred Conrad Veidt, who married a Jewish woman and sort of fled the country. Um, and that was, like, a very well-regarded film. Uh, you look at the 1913 original, that was Paul Wegener and Hans Heinz Evers. So I'm not sure if maybe there was just... Those movies were so well-regarded that maybe Goebbels felt it was necessary to prove that the Aryans could do it better. I'm not really sure. With it being popular and also already having, like, two adaptations, I wonder if there's also... Um, if it's somehow tied to the... Volkish feeling, right? Like, yeah, it's a student in Prague, not in Germany, but I wonder if, because it's that classic story, you're well, still telling it. Exactly, and it's, and it's a period piece, right? It's always been a period piece. It's set in the mid-19th century when Prague was part of the uh, Austrian Empire. Um, and I wonder if that period piece helps give it, you know, maybe a bit more of a fairy tale feel that helps it be a, bit, a little more Volkish than, you know, being a horror film. Mm-hmm. Um, granted, like, no, that 1926 version is a horror film. You know what I mean? Like, And the 1913. So regardless of why they chose it, there's some interesting bits of information to keep in mind about some of the previous people who have been involved in previous versions of Student of Prague. The original 1913 version was, of course, directed by and starring Paul Wegener. And uh, as we've mentioned, Paul Wegener stayed in Germany and became a Nazi state actor under uh, the Reichsfilmkammer. Um, however, uh, he did use his position to donate money to resistance groups and also hide refugees in his apartment. The original 1913 version was written by Hans Heinz Evers, uh, who also wrote Alrauna and was also a German spy during World War I. He was captured in New York and was a POW for the rest of the war. Right. Evers was actually attracted by the nationalism, the moral philosophy, and the Teutonic culture of the Nazis, and he joined the party in 1931. However, he did not agree with the party's anti-Semitism, and the party did not agree with his homosexuality. So, uh, Evers found himself in conflict with Alfred Rosenberg, and Rosenberg was in many ways sort of the chief architect of Nazi intellectual thought and philosophy. Uh, when Hitler first started, you know, really getting popular in the late 20s, 
the popular opinion was that he was a mouthpiece for Rosenberg, uh, which ultimately ended up making Hitler really resentful of Rosenberg because he didn't like being seen as like someone else's puppet. Mm-hmm. Um, Hitler also really didn't believe in any of Rosenberg's philosophies, um, but as I was saying earlier, he kind of just used them. Um, so Rosenberg was the guy coming up with, you know, the like, Aryans are from Atlantis and, you know, d- are descended from, like, gods and we are descended from them. Kind of like all that kind of crazy stuff is from him. And so he didn't really like Evers. So in 1934, Evers found his books were banned and his assets and his property were seized by the government. So that makes it sort of even more odd that this film, based on his work, came out a year later. Yeah. The production company behind this version of Der Student von Prague was Cine Allianz Tonfilm, which was founded in 1932 from the merger of Arnold Pressburger's Allianz Tonfilm and Grieger Rabinovich's Cine Alliance. The new company, Cine Allianz Tonfilm, was one of early 1930s Germany's most successful production companies. It had a vast array of talent uh, on contract, uh, people like Brigitte Helm, Fritz Lang, uh, and so on. However, Pressburger and Rabinovich were Jewish, so in 1935 the company was seized under the control of the Reichsfilmkammer, and the two founders were forced out of the company. Uh, both of them would flee Germany uh, afterwards for France, and then later England and America. Der Student von Prague was actually the first film produced under the Aryanized version of the company, which would still use the name Cine Allianz since it was a well-established brand. Mm-hmm. Um, and this process of Aryanization uh, was very common in all German industries at the time, you know, just basically taking Jewish people out of those positions of power and replacing them with quote-unquote Aryans. The film was directed by Atter Robeson, who'd been working in the German film industry since 1914, initially as a writer. Uh, He directed his first film in 1916 and established himself as a top expressionist filmmaker in the 1920s, particularly with 1923's Schatten, a film that has no intertitles at all. Oh, interesting. This version of Der Student von Prague would be Robeson's final film as he passed away two months before the premiere at the age of 52. I'm also kind of surprised that he was chosen because German Expressionism was seen as a little bougie by Mm -hmm. the Nazis. Yeah, they didn't like it. Starring in the title role of Baldwin, uh, which we've previously seen played by Paul Wegener and Conrad Veidt, is Adolf Volbrook. Born in 1896 in Vienna, he came from a family of actors stretching back ten generations and studied under Max Reinhardt. He primarily acted on stage... Uh, until the advent of sound film, when he began appearing in films regularly. However, Volbrook's mother was Jewish, uh, which made him uh, what they called a Mischling, or mixed-race person, under Nazi racial policy, Mm. Um, specifically what they called a first-degree Mischling, which meant that um, you could still be a German citizen and have all the protections under the law that a citizen got, so long as you didn't marry a Jewish person, uh, in which case that would make you retroactively Jewish and your children Jewish, and Jews cannot be citizens. The other problem was, in addition to being a Mischling under the law, 
he himself was gay. Mm. So, in 1936, a year after making this film, uh, he went to Hollywood to reshoot the dialogue scenes for the international version of the German film The Soldier and the Lady, which um, did a thing where anytime there was dialogue, they just reshot it in multiple languages for release in different countries. Um, and when he arrived in Hollywood to do that, he changed his name to Anton Walbrook and didn't go back to Germany. Yeah. Um, he would go on to appear in later films like Gaslight, Colonel Blimp, and The Red Shoes. The Scapanelli role in this film has been renamed to Dr. Karpis, um, likely because Italian fascists were allies of the Nazis. Ah, uh, that's a good point. And is played in this film by Theodore Luce. He was a veteran of the German stage and screen, with 165 films under his belt at this point, from 1913 to 1935, and would, by the time he retired in 1964, have an, um, a total of 206 film credits. Wow. Uh, these include um, four films with director Fritz Lang, uh, Die Nibelungen, Metropolis, M, and Das Testament des Dr. Mabusa. He was also a member of the advisory council of the Reichsfilmkammer, which was the council that advised uh, directly Joseph Goebbels. So, a Nazi. Yeah. The role of Yulia, uh, which has been renamed from Countess Margit in previous versions, uh, that character is now called Yulia. Um, she's played by Dorothea Wieck, who was a popular young actress of 27 years old at the time. And in this version of the story, she's an opera singer. Although, all of her singing has been dubbed by Melitza Cordes, who was a popular soprano at the Berlin State Opera at the time, uh, but would later be taken out of Germany by Irving Thalberg to go work for MGM in 1938. Der Student von Prague was released on December 10th, 1935, uh, German critics, who had not yet been outlawed at the time, <laughs> uh, they praised the film and its cast for being more realistic and believable than previous versions and not relying so heavily on supernaturalism and stylization. Interesting. Believability was another thing that Goebbels was like, yeah, do this. On the other hand, international critics, uh, then and now... Consider this to be far inferior to either silent version. Yeah, we'll see what we are in store for mm -hmm. for this. Will it be pure escapist cotton candy? Or will it actually be a horror film? Yeah, who knows? I guess we will. After the break. How are we watching this movie? Well, um, this version of Der Student von Prague is in the public domain because the company that made it no longer exists. However, it's not easy to come by. It doesn't have a home video release in English-speaking territories. I'm not even sure if it has an official home video release in German-speaking territories. It has played on German TV every once in a while. I think it had a German VHS release, maybe. Mm. Um, it is currently not on YouTube anywhere. I found it from the Internet Archive, had it, uh, because it's public domain. Uh, so that's how we'll be watching it, and it's probably the easiest way for our listeners to find it as well. So we'll be watching the film, you will hear a brief musical interlude, and we will be right back after watching the 1935 
Student Von Prague. See you on the other side, everybody. Welcome back to Scream Scene. We just finished watching the 1935 Student of Prague remake directed by Arthur Robinson. What did you think, Ben? Not bad. Yeah, I uh, I wasn't expecting it to go horror, but it did. Yeah, by the end. Um, it had sort of a similar structure, really, to the um, original from 1913, where it kind of starts off really fluffy, mm-hmm. and then sort of goes horror gradually. They even both open with, this is a romantic drama. Yeah, this is, uh, this one calls itself a uh, romantic fantastic film <laughs> or something like that. Yeah, this film, if, we're, if we were just like critiquing this film in terms of how well it worked as a remake, I think it did pretty well being its own thing, but also paying homage to the first two. Okay. Yeah. And kind of updating itself with the new situation that it had to deal with. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Before we go any deeper, uh, let's talk about the story of this version of The Student of Prague. Because it is a little different than what we've seen in the past. A little bit, yeah. Our main character, Baldwin, is a student... And he flirts with the innkeeper's daughter, Lydia, mm-hmm. previously known as Ladushka. And previously, like, a street girl. Yeah, well, like a flower girl. Mm-hmm. And he has a friendly rivalry for her affections with a friend of his named Doll. This rivalry kind of comes to an end um, when Julia, an amazing opera singer, comes to the bar accompanied by her sweetheart, Baron. And... Baldwin is pretty enamored by her, so he kind of forgets Lydia. Mm -hmm. As this happens, a mysterious traveler in black and with a cane comes to stay at the inn. He kind of comes in without anyone noticing him, except for maybe like the innkeeper. And as Julia sings and entertains the crowd, the mysterious man also is shown being raptured by her singing up in his room. Julia becomes infatuated with Baldwin when he defends her honor from a drunk student, and to reward him for this, she invites him and his friends to her show that night. After she performs, she goes back to her room and she finds the mysterious man in her fitting room. Julia and this man appear to know each other, as she calls him by his name, Dr. Carpus. We learn even more uh, how much they know each other, He's angry that she has the Baron and Baldwin after her affections, as he says, she's his, damn it, he made her. And it's that line that kind of indicates how this film is taking some inspiration from Phantom of the Opera. Mm -hmm. As they talk, uh, we realize that he's done away with some of her lovers in the past, like this poor guy named Matteo in Venice. Uh, and Julia says how all she knows is that he shot himself. Mm-hmm. Um, they kind of do these interesting callbacks to, like, if you've seen the first two, you know that that's what they're referring to, but uh, in the case of Matteo, it's clear that 
Dr. Carpus has done something to these people to make them go a little crazy and shoot themselves. Mm-hmm. The Baron comes in and presents her with a bracelet, which she promptly loses on her way to the carriage to take her home. Uh, she bumps into Baldwin and she says he'll get a reward, wink wink, if he finds this bracelet. As she and the Baron drive off, Dr. Carpus introduces himself to Baldwin in kind of a mysterious way and points out the bracelet on the ground. So Baldwin has found the bracelet, now he goes to her apartment to return it. And as much as she's like, hey, dude, it's the middle of the night, uh, she's also very thankful and affectionate, but she also is like, okay, you can't be around me. I can't say why. We as the audience know it's because of Dr. Carpus and his jealousy, but Baldwin takes this pushback as uh, him being poor. Mm-hmm. You know, he doesn't have any money. So he returns home, and Dr. Carpus is waiting for him in his own apartment. Baldwin is lamenting, I'm such a poor student, woe is me. And Dr. Carpus has these phrases of, cast off that naive, sentimental man, or whatever, in the mirror, and be a real man. And as he says this, Dr. Carpus covers the mirror with a black cloak, and explains that now Baldwin has a lucky hand. Mm-hmm. And as he demonstrates this, you know, Baldwin keeps pulling out, like, the right card or getting the right amount of dice. So they go gambling, and Baldwin just keeps winning and winning. The Baron shows up and ends up losing his horse and carriage to Baldwin. When Baldwin returns home from gambling, he <laughs> falls asleep on his gold. Perhaps sleeping on his gold is what leads him to have kind of a nightmare where he sees his reflection, dressed in his school uniform, walk out of the mirror. I didn't think he was... Was he awake for that? He was asleep. And but, then he woke up. It was like a dream sequence. I don't... I, okay. I don't know if I interpreted that as a dream sequence. Well, because he was asleep. Because, like, I, I thought it was like he's asleep, he wakes up, he sees the guy come out of the mirror, and then he goes to back to sleep. He's asleep. We have a shot of the mirror with the cloak over it. Mm-hmm. The cloak disappears, and to me that's dream sequence. Oh, I thought that was like magic. Baldwin's reflection walks through and uh, walks off screen and that's when real life Baldwin wakes up, looks at the mirror, the cloak is over it. Okay, I thought that was like supernatural magic stuff. I didn't get that that was a dream, but that's okay. So anyway, he has that dream of a doppelganger coming out of the mirror, but he's terrified to move the cloak in case it ruins his lucky hand. Uh, That night, I guess the following night, is a ball at the opera house. And Baldwin surprises Julia by picking her up from her home in the Baron's carriage and horse. They're having a lovely time at the ball when Julia runs off because she's being watched. She sees Dr. Carpus and the Baron uh, watching them, and so she runs off, tells Baldwin to meet up in her rooms. By now, the Baron is getting pretty jealous, and Dr. Carpus is stoking it. As Baldwin goes and finds Julia in her rooms, he begins to see his mere self in a hallway down corridors, and he chases them in a confusion. Now, he's with Julia when he first sees this doppelganger, uh, but it's not very clear whether she sees it. Mm-hmm. it. It seems to be implied that it's all in his own head. She happens to run into Dr. Carpus, and she accuses him of having Baldwin under his spell. Um, So we know that she has some knowledge of his capabilities. 
with Baldwin chasing down his doppelganger, getting kind of confused, he is a little, like, stunned in the face, and he's walking through the opera ballroom, and the Baron gets really upset with him about being with Julia, slaps him, and now they have to duel. Mm -hmm. Baldwin is still the best fencer in Prague, so um, to avoid anyone's death, Julia makes an agreement between both Baldwin and the Baron that they will yield before killing their opponent. Baldwin is totally ready to just do that, um, but during the duel, Carpus is manipulating both parties into overdoing it, and Baldwin sees his double in the crowd just as he stabs and kills the Baron. His last words are, but the agreement. <laughs> so now everyone knows that Baldwin went back on his word. Mm -hmm. Because everyone knows this, Baldwin is like, okay, I need to get out of, like, run away from this crowd of people who were watching the duel. As he does so, he's haunted by his double, who is appearing out of shadows, appearing uh, as drivers of carriages, um, that sort of thing. Also, he goes to Julia's apartments and he sees his double there, and uh, he runs away. The reason I bring up the visit to Julia's apartment is because um, after he leaves in like a crazed look in his eye, uh, Julia hears ominous piano music coming from the other room, and she looks, and it's Dr. Carpus, who just walks into people's houses yeah. like they're his own. Yeah, he just always has, like... The ability to be in a scene if he wants to be in it. He never seems to, like, actually enter or exit them. Exactly, yeah. And so, since she's seen Baldwin's crazed look in his eye, she kind of realizes, like, I guess I am trapped in this relationship with Carpus, uh, and she says, I'm under your spell. Mm. And that's when Dr. Carpus gets up, and he's like, well, actually, I'm leaving. Forever. Bye. <laughs> Carpus does what he wants, I guess. Um... Anyways, cut to uh, Baldwin continuing to run around streets, um, and he he goes back to the original inn where his friends were all hanging around, and he tries to, you know, bring back good times, have them sing, whatever, but by now word about not honoring that agreement has spread, and Baldwin is abandoned by his friends. Um, again, he's haunted by his double as he runs back to his apartments. Baldwin makes it home just in time to see Dr. Carpus leaving the inn in a carriage, and after some curt words, Carpus drives off in the carriage, but Baldwin is stabbing the side of the carriage as it goes off, and uh, as he jumps off the carriage, he is a little dizzy, and I took that to mean he killed Carpus. I didn't really get that sense at all, but... Because he was, like, stabbing I saw that carriage. he was stabbing it, but I would feel like if you were going to have such, like, a major event, you'd bother to, like, show it or indicate it in some way. I, I, didn't, I, I didn't get that he was successful, but the fact that, like, you had one interpretation and me as another just sort of shows that the movie didn't do a good enough job maybe delineating that plot point. Yeah, for sure. So, despite being dizzy, he gets home, sits at his table after, like, knocking things off around his apartment, the cloak over the mirror falls, and he sees that he does indeed have no reflection. And this is the first time that it's confirmed for us audience members that he does not have any reflection. The double appears in the room and walks over to the front of the mirror. Baldwin pulls out a gun, the double opens up his jacket, and Baldwin shoots. The double disappears, um, and Baldwin has shot the mirror, 
And he goes up and he seems very happy that he can now see his reflection. He says phrases like, I've rejoined with myself or something like that, because he was feeling like he had completely lost that other side. And he dies with a smile on his face because he shot himself. Mm -hmm. The end. This movie's kind of fascinating being like the third iteration of this story we've seen, right? Because what they've kind of, what they've changed and what they've kept the same, like where they've made those choices is really, is really weird to me. Okay. Because I don't really see a coherent overall pattern to it. Like I can understand maybe why individual changes were made, but then the way all those changes kind of add up doesn't equal out to being like a coherent story, especially because of like the things that then are also kept the same from previous versions that now don't make as much sense because they're not attached to story elements they were originally like designed for, mm-hmm. um, which made the whole movie a little bit weird to watch because at times I just wasn't quite sure why things were happening, even though I, I could see like what was happening, you know? Well, it seemed like the film was trying to be like, these people are being manipulated by Corpus. Mm-hmm. But then when Corpus just ups and leaves... It doesn't make... It doesn't make any it sense. Make any That's sense. the point where I was like, what are you trying to do here? Um, otherwise, it was just like him pulling the strings of these people. You look at the differences between the 1913 and the 1926. They're basically the same story. Um, the 26 version kind of expands on the 1913 version a lot, mm-hmm. but really they're the, the same story, the same beats. The main difference is in, like, some character choices that help the story. Um, in the original version, Baldwin was kind of just, like, a guy, and he wanted money so he could be with, like, a countess, and he exchanged money for his reflection. And what that reflection, like, represented was always kind of unclear. Maybe it was his soul. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like this movie actually has a bit of, like, a, a joke towards the older movies where um, Carpus says that, like, the devil showing up to take a student's soul is really old-fashioned. Yeah. But we got the sense that Scapinelli in the original was, like, either the devil or death, and, like, he was there for Baldwin's soul or to convince Baldwin to commit suicide so it would damn his soul or something like that. Mm-hmm. The 26 version is basically the same story, but clarifies the morality a bit by having Baldwin be an asshole. And then Scapinelli shows up, they make kind of the same deal, but all of Baldwin's kind of evil traits, as it were, go into the double. And what's left is like a a quote-unquote good Baldwin, which helps explain like why the double kills his romantic rival, um, and why uh, I think the double also attacks uh, and maybe kills Margaret in that version as well. Um, but, like, the devil's evil. And then, like, in this version, they've switched it around so that in it seemed to be what they were saying was the double represented what was good in Baldwin. Because the double is his sentimentality. They always refer to the double as the sentimental dreamer. And Carpus's whole thing is like, oh, in order to get ahead in life, you have to let go of that. So it implies, like, oh, you have to let go of sentimentality to be successful. And the movie shows that as, like, a bad thing. Um, and Baldwin, with you know, once he doesn't have his reflection or whatever, um, he's super lucky. Like, good luck is what he gets in return or something. But, like, th- he's a worse person. So the, the, the moral of the story is kind of flipped in a way. And that 
has these weird ripple outs on the plot where like, you know, the central event of the student of Prague in the previous versions is his romantic rival, this Baron, challenges him to a duel. In the old versions, like Baldwin agrees not to fight for various reasons. Mm -hmm. I think in the 13 it was because like the Baron's dad asks him not to and in the 26 it's because Margaret asks him not to. Regardless, he doesn't fight. And then he finds out that the double went and fought in his place. And in this version, because, like, post-deal, Baldwin is kind of an, a jerk a little bit. Like, there's no reason why he wouldn't fight. So it's just this, like, we agreed not to hurt each other. And the double makes him kill the Baron because he, like, distracts him at a weird moment. Mm -hmm. So, like, all the things that the double does in the plot of the old versions aren't really here. The only thing the double really does in this version is the last bit where he kind of drives Baldwin to insanity. Yeah. Which which does make me agree with your theory that, like, the movie kind of implies, or strongly implies, that, like, the double isn't real. It's just something in Baldwin's head. And, like, representative of his guilt over, like, over killing the Baron. Right? Yeah. Because that's when the haunting intensifies. Yeah, for sure. Um, I mean, he sees the double before that. Obviously. But that's often in, in cases where Carpus is trying to manipulate him, right? To make yeah. him go a little crazy. Yeah. And even at the end when we see he has no reflection, like, that's just us, the audience, seeing that. And us, the audience, we also see the double everywhere. There's no scene, unlike in previous versions, where other characters see he has no reflection. And there's never a scene where other characters see the double, and the double never has any, like, physical effect yeah. on the world, right? So with all that, you'd kind of think that what they were trying to do is take all the supernatural stuff out of the story, but they aren't. Because then you have, like, Carpus, who's much more involved in this version than Scapinelli was, right? Like, they finally give him, like, motivation to be involved in this story. Like, Scapinelli always felt like he just kind of was there at the time. He happened to be walking by. Yeah, well, I mean, like, in the 1913, he had a bit more agency, but in the 26, like, I remember us commenting on how he doesn't even show up at the end. Mm-hmm. Um, so this Carpus has, like, this explicit motivation to be here, which, as you pointed out, is very Phantom of the Opera-esque, right? Yeah, and the way that he... No one explicitly says this. It's all very heavily implied, though, that the reason that Julia can sing is because of some deal or something that she made with Carpus. Exactly. He's also, like, a lot more explicitly linked with the devil than Scapinelli was. Like, it's weird. I feel like no one ever comes out and says, oh, Scapinelli's the devil in the old versions. But I feel like it's a fair assumption that he is. Mm. In this version, everyone calls Carpus the devil, but it feels less like he's explicitly actually supposed to be the devil. Maybe it's because he seems a little human. Like, he, he talks yes. about this jealousy. Yeah, he has human emotions and motives, right? But then, like, the movie isn't saying there's no magic, because even if Julia's singing ability is all in her head, Baldwin actually does have supernatural gambling powers. Like, one of, in my opinion, one of the best scenes in the movie is this scene where he's with his buddies, and it's near the end of the movie when he's kind of going nuts, and he keeps rolling a perfect double six, or triple six, on these dice. And he keeps doing it over and over and over again, and it's always the same. And 
it gets to the point where like people are kind of a bit freaked out by it and they all just leave. There is something supernatural happening here. It's just not the same as what was in the previous movies. Like they've expressed it differently mm -hmm. and the deal works differently. Yeah, that's why another film that this version of The Student of Prague reminded me of was The Magician. Yes, another Paul Wigner movie. Yeah, um, and it's because, like, the only supernatural thing with The Magician was that weird, like, dream thing with that lady. Mm -hmm. um, but otherwise, he's just, like, manipulative. And while we critique the movie for not kind of convincing the audience about how magnetic Paul Wigner might be, um, it still felt like that might have been an influence on this movie. Yeah, it's it's very kind of strange because I think that the changes that were made, like, you can see someone saying, like, okay, let's give Carpus an actual reason to be here, right? But then giving him those human motivations, you know, it's weird that he's that and the devil, and it's weird then that he doesn't, like, I don't know, get Julia in the end or something. And then you can also see, like, the idea behind, like, well, let's make Baldwin a good person and have him lose his goodness as part of the deal. And it's, like, a moral thing. But then that, like, makes the actual plot beats of Student of Prague not work anymore, so you have to change them a whole ton to get the same story out of it. It's, it's a little weird. It kind of breaks the story to do it. Another thing that's similar is the changes that happened with Ladushka becoming Lydia. Mm -hmm. Where in previous versions, Ladushka was always kind of vaguely ethnic. She was vaguely othered in some way. Um, she was sort of poor and, you know, she was a flower girl, but she didn't seem to have like... She seemed like a bit of a transient in some way. And this version, now she's Lydia. She's blonde. She's the innkeeper's daughter. She's a lot more pure. There's, like, way more of an explicit thing of um, the idea that Baldwin's going for this one girl instead of Lydia is wrong. Like, he should have been content with just, like, pure girl-next-door Lydia. Totally. And by making Lydia the representative of, like, pure, good, Volkish women or whatever, it removes her point from the plot yeah, she doesn't get, like, a message and goes and tells someone. Like, her role in this movie is to be upset when Baldwin goes after Julia. Yeah, she's there to represent, like, the things that Baldwin has foolishly left behind by pursuing, like, wealth and status, right? Whereas in the original, her whole point was she goes and tells on Baldwin to the Baron, and that is what makes the duel happen. Yeah. So, yeah, it's like you have these weird, they, they almost feel like appendixes kind of left over where you don't really need them anymore because you've made these other changes. Do you mean appendices in, like, a book where it's, like, extra stuff at the end? Or do you mean an appendix in our body that doesn't really serve kind of a purpose? I mean appendix, as in, like, a vestigial thing you no longer need and can get rid of. Okay. You could cut Lydia out of this movie and lose nothing. At the same time, she's included quite a lot in this movie. Yeah. Obviously not for plot reasons, but I think for thematic reasons. Mm-hmm, um, mm -hmm. And with the context of this film being in Nazi Germany, and, like you've already pointed out, that she's very 
very much a Volkish character. Mm -hmm. um, I think she just serves to underline the what he's given up. Yeah, it's it's they've changed what you know the moral of the story is because it's it's now about. I mean, it's the same moral as always because the point is always that Baldwin never should have made the deal. It's just what he's making that deal for and what's changing is different, which is one of the things that hurts the movie in some places because it still has to follow the same like plot beats mm. as Student of Prague. And you see this with remakes where they change like the theme of the story but try to keep the plot the same. And you start to realize like in a good story those two things are really indelibly linked because in a bad story when they're not linked, things stop making sense, you know? Yeah. We talked about with the 1913 Student of Prague, how there was a lot of Jewish iconography. Yes. Like, Ladushka was, like, possibly Jewish. Scapinelli hangs out in a Jewish cemetery. Mm -hmm. No reason it needs to be Jewish. It's just specifically Jewish cemetery. Um, and, I mean, we've also noticed how, with, like, the golem, Paul Wegner is a little bit of... Uh, he's very interested in Jewish iconography. Mm-hmm. Um, and, like, Prague is, like, a major Jewish center, right? Like, or at least that's why, you know, the golem's set there and stuff. It, it was a major Jewish center, I should say. All of that Jewish iconography is removed yes. in this version, if not just outright replaced by German iconography. Yeah. Um, um, we were talking about how, as we were watching the film, we commented on the opera, Julia sings. It's specifically from Figaro, like they name it. Figaro is Italian, written by German composer Mozart, but she's singing it in German. Mm -hmm. If you, if it wasn't for the title of this movie, you wouldn't know it was set in Prague. Yeah. Like, yes, in the time period of this film, which is like the 1830s or something, if I remember from earlier versions, um, Prague was in the Austrian Empire. And Austria is basically just Catholic Germany. It was so, in the 1860s, actually. Was it 1860s? Okay. So well, then it's definitely like the Austro-Hungary. Yeah. Um, so so it makes sense to have some German influence in it. I mean, the students are wearing the same costume they've worn in every version of this movie. But there's nothing that feels like Bohemian or Czech about the setting. Like you said, all the Jewish stuff is gone which was one of the ways that, you know, Wigner made it feel like Prague. Um, and, and, you know, yeah, you wouldn't know that this wasn't set in Germany if it wasn't for the title. Yeah. Something else that, again, was a bit of a surprise to me, because it's Nazi Germany, is the amount of German expressionism that's in this film. Oh, did you, did you see German expressionism? Totally. Okay. Uh, in the lighting, mm -hmm. um, it was... Very dark, very spooky, very stark. Carpus looks like Dr. Caligari. He does, he does. The urban designer of these streets definitely loved German Expressionism. The way that they're just, like, winding and zigzagging all the of, way through. A lot of them really looked like the streets from the 1926 version. Mm -hmm. Like, obviously, like, it's we're, we're nine years later. They can't possibly be the same sets. I mean, maybe, but... Um, but it felt almost like deliberate homage. It didn't feel 
from my perspective, it didn't feel expressionist, even though, like, definitely stark lighting, definitely he looks like Caligari, but it sort of felt like the movie wasn't sort of referencing those tropes for their expressionism as it was referencing those tropes because they're horror tropes. Like, this is what horror looks like. You know, they, they light Carpus from uh, beneath consistently as if he was like your dad with a flashlight telling a scary story at night. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I mean, like, you make a good point. By this time, German expressionism has kind of evolved into what horror looks like. But given the fact that, like, they've removed the supernatural elements and it's a bit more psychological, mm -hmm. I feel like you could make the case that this is a German Expressionist film. Okay, sure. I just didn't see that connection between character and production design, but I get what you mean now. For me, the movie really looked, in terms of its production design, like Hollywood. I was, I was going to comment on, like, the production design? Mm -hmm. The production budget? The production value. <laughs> the production value, yeah. I mean, to be fair, we've done, like, a few Poverty Row films in a row, <laughs> sure. and I was, like, going to say, like, it's so nice to watch a film that's actually kind of good. Like, it doesn't just feel like Hollywood in terms of the quality. Mm. There's just something intangible about the, the style that feels like it's reaching for sort of A-budget Hollywood in, in some way. I mean... I think about a movie like La Llorona, which didn't approach Hollywood filmmaking at all in terms of its quality, right? And I mean, German, the German film industry has, you know, got a long history. It knows what it's doing, but there's something, like, visually and thematically, and especially musically, that felt like Hollywood to me. This might have been the most aggressive musical score we've had in a movie yet in terms of telling us what to feel and when to feel it. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there's stings for every moment. Yeah. And it just had this feel to me. It felt like I was watching a, an MGM movie or a Disney movie, even, with how the music is. It has that same feeling of, like, costume drama escapism, mm. you know, and especially with the romantic elements and, and things um, that a Hollywood movie has. And I think that makes sense because creating a culture that could, especially a film culture, that could compete with America culturally was a goal of Goebbels. He was a, a big admirer of a lot of Hollywood filmmakers, and he wanted to see German cinema sort of copy that and surpass it. And I think what's interesting about that is in so many of our previous episodes, we've talked about the way that foreign films normally approach things was to try and be explicitly different from Hollywood because you couldn't compete with them. And this movie's instead trying to be as much as possible like Hollywood because it's not so much trying to compete with Hollywood as it's trying to replace Hollywood. Yeah, a very German replacement. Mm -hmm. Like they probably couldn't have chosen a, a German story, right, for a horror film? Yeah, and I mean... It's just got that, it's got that feeling that, you know, Hollywood costume dramas have from around this same period. You know, this has more in common with, in some ways, something like The Black Room than, you know, Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. Totally, yeah. I think, you know, we talked about how the horror ramps up, and certainly, like... There was some time in this movie where I was wondering what we'd gotten ourselves into... Yeah, I thought it was interesting that it copied itself f 
from the 1913 mm-hmm. with like that opening of like we're a romantic fantastical mm-hmm. what what is it romantic fantastic drama a romantic fantastic drama and it opens with like people singing and there's like, like four songs in a row off the top of this yeah, movie yeah scene after scene after scene but then it it just goes into the horror by the end yeah once I wish it could have gone like more into the horror, mm-hmm. but it it compared to where it started, I guess you could say it went for it. Yeah, I, I think in a way this movie's almost horror because of where it starts from and goes to. But it's it's certainly like once Carpus shows up. It's interesting to think of this movie in, in comparison to Murders in the Rue Morgue. Okay. Which tried to balance out its horror with shoving in moments of people singing. <laughs> Whereas this movie is like, well, we'll get the singing over and done with, and then go into horror. Yeah, it the singing was a bit overbearing for me at the start, because it felt like such a bludgeoning you over the head of, like, aren't these good, common, vocish people or whatever, singing these, like, tavern songs? But it is ultimately effective in giving us a contrast to where we end up with. Yeah, and I think if I have to sit through people singing at the camera... I much prefer it being structured like this than it was in Murders in the Rue Morgue. For sure. There's never anything as cool or creative as what's in the 1926 version in terms of visuals and set pieces. Yeah, there's hardly any special effects in this movie. There's some split screening. Barely. Barely. Um, Yeah. Yeah, and the double kind of fades in and out of places, but that's about it. I mean, there's some decent shadowy visuals. There's some good creepy moments. This isn't as good as the 1926 version, but I think if it was the first version of Student of Prague you ever saw, you'd probably enjoy it. Like, I think mostly where it suffers is by comparison Mm. to earlier versions of this story that were better done and made more sense. I think uh, Theodore Luce is a pretty good villain. Like, he's just as good, I think, as Werner Krauss was, or even John Gatoet as Scapinelli. And maybe that's just because his version of this character has a bit more motive and personality yeah i was going to say more to do but he does pretty much the same amount of stuff it just he's not just fucking with someone right like Mm -hmm. he he has a motive even if that motive is just like get away from my girl yeah and volbrook um he isn't as good as conrad veit no um but i think maybe he's perhaps better than paul wigner was at the very least the same yeah he acquits himself well like that's what i mean i think on its own, this is fine. It's just not as good as what it's remaking, right? Mm-hmm. I think, for me, the standout scene is the, the, the dice scene, where he keeps rolling sixes, which I already mentioned. And the other scene I really like is there's one where, like, the double shows up and Baldwin tries to make him go away by giving him money, and he just keeps pulling out, like, these vast amounts of coins, like, out of his pockets, like, impossibly vast amounts of money, which is kind of a good play on the infinite money gag from, like, the earlier versions. But, yeah, that's kind of about it. It's it's all right. It's fine. Yeah. Was there any moments for you that particularly, like, stood out as good moments in this version? No, the only moments that kind of stood out to me were ones where it was like, Phantom of the Opera, the magician, (laughs) you know, where it was just like, yeah, I know where you got this from. Right. Yeah. Seeing those those um, fingerprints. Yeah, there was um, there was nothing that kind of stood out to me overwhelmingly. Well, shall we move into ranking then? 
Yeah. So where were you looking for Student of Prague, Sarah? I started with looking at where the 1926 version and the 1913 versions sit. Yeah, for sure. The 1926 version is at 18, and the 1913 one is at number 25. Mm -hmm. That's a pretty big range. The highest I would probably put this film is like below the 1926 Student of Prague, but I don't think it's better than Freaks. I don't think it's better than The Black Room. We could have a discussion about how it compares with The Fall of the House of Usher. It would be an interesting discussion to think about Orlach's Hund and how both films are adapting a type of German Expressionism into a sense of realism. White Zombie could be interesting. The Raven could be interesting. But honestly, I feel like my gut is telling me that this film either... Like, I really like the 1913 Student of Prague. I really like it. And I feel like this could either maybe go above it, but probably below 1913 Student of Prague and above the 1919 Unheimliche Geschichten. Okay, interesting. You kind of started in a different place and worked your way down to a different place, but we had a similar methodology. Okay. Certainly thinking about this movie versus The Raven was something I was doing a lot because this is, gosh, like, it feels like the fifth or sixth or something in a string of movies about, like, older dude wants younger woman, has to get younger rival out of the way. Like, that feels like that's been what all of these movies have been about lately. Yeah. Um, that was certainly last week with Dr. Crespi. Um, but I sort of, I knew this wasn't as good as the 1926 Student of Prague. I wasn't sure if it was better or worse than the original. Because while the production values here are much higher, the original does cooler things with the special effects of its time. The original is the first feature-length horror film. The original came up with the story, and the story makes more sense in the original context. I think the 26 version improves on it, but I don't think any of the changes in this version are an improvement. I think they're interesting changes. It's a neat alternate take on the story, mm -hmm. but I don't think they're necessarily better. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I, I wasn't sure if this was better or worse. So the highest I'd be willing to put this is number 25, below the Raven, above the original. Um, that's if we agree it's better than the original. But then I kind of started working my way down. Because the other thing about this movie is, like, it does go horror by the end. It's still a pretty tepid horror. That's a really good point. It's, it's still a very much like, you know, this movie feels less like a horror film of the 1930s. And really what it feels the most like, honestly, is a feature-length German version of The Twilight Zone. Where, you know, like you can picture Rod Serling coming in at the start and saying like, Pictured for your approval, a Czech student named Baldwin, who's the best fencer in Prague. You know, and, and, and kind of thing. Because then it just slowly, you know, he slowly goes mad. There's a moral at the end of the story. And yeah. it's spooky at the end, more than, like, explicitly supernatural. So it's, it's kind of a tepid horror that's more like TV than film. So I kind of started working my way down the list. And I was like, well, you know, Dr. X, Murders in the Room Morgue, uh, Mark of the Vampire, Mystery of the Wax Museum. Like, these are, this is the midsection of the list where it's like, these movies are kind of good and kind of bad. And um, where I ended up with, for my floor, 
was number 33. I thought, definitely for sure, this is better than the Vampire Bat. Because it's at least better made um, than the Vampire Bat. So that's kind of where I ended up with um, for a range, was I just sort of found, like, you know, it's, it's definitely not better than the Raven. It is definitely better than the Vampire Bat. It's probably better than a lot of the movies in this range, but that's kind of where I ended up. So it's interesting that the top of my range was the bottom of yours. What do you think about comparing this to Murders in the Voom Morgue? Like, I kind of did it earlier a little mm-hmm. bit. They both have that same feeling of, like, pulling the brakes a little bit on horror. Um, you're right that, like, I think the structure of the way this one does it is better. And then the flip side is that when Murders of the Room Morgue goes for horror, it's uh, going for it a lot more than this movie ever does. Because this movie, you know, the most horror it gets is, like, it's kind of creepy how, like, he keeps seeing himself everywhere, right? (laughs) Wouldn't you, like, totally kill yourself if you just kept, like, seeing yourself everywhere? I mean, maybe if you weren't, like, an egotist, like, if you're Donald Trump, maybe not. But, like, if you're Baldwin, let's say that's scary. Like, that's as scary as this goes, right? Whereas, like, Murders in the Room Morgue is like, hey, what if an orangutan, like, raped a girl? Like, it's, it's a little bit more, you know, extreme. Sure. So I feel like, what do you think of Below Murders in the Room Morgue, Above Mark of the Vampire? Yeah, I think so. Mark of the Vampire has some good Halloween moments, but, like, ultimately is a cheap cop-out movie. Yeah, whereas this is a... A film made in Germany, you know? <laughs> well, no, it's like it's like when you get a new toaster. It's like, ah, this was made in Germany. Sure. You know, as opposed to like, ah, real all-Canadian toaster. <laughs> I guess what I was going to say was that <laughs> at least maybe the horror in this movie is real? Because maybe... Carpus has powers, maybe? Mm-hmm. Whereas Mark the Vampire is like, yeah, vampires are fake. This was all just an elaborate scheme. So I'm totally good with putting it there, actually. Okay. Entering the list at number 29 is Der Student von Prague from 1935, directed by Atur Robeson. If you would like to see this list, you can go to our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com, and there you will find links to previous episodes. You can listen back to these Student of Prague episodes and see how our opinions have even changed. 1913 Student of Prague is like episode two. Mm-hmm. On our website, you will also find an appeals box where you can submit appeals, but also concerns, questions, comments, loud noises... <laughs> if you feel like we should reconsider where we've ranked something, please tell us there. Or you can email us at screamscenepodcast at gmail.com or talk to us on Twitter at underscore screamscene. Screamscene updates every Wednesday on SoundCloud, iTunes, and Google Play. You can also find us wherever you listen to your podcasts by using our RSS feed. If you can give us a rating or a review on iTunes or Apple Podcasts, whatever it's calling itself these days, that's a big help to us because it helps other people find the show. Another way you can really help out is just by telling people about us, uh, whether that's on Twitter or Tumblr by giving us a you know, retweet or a reblog, or that's in person by 
telling a friend that you listen to this nice podcast. I pictured someone like knocking on our door being like, hey, good podcast. Like, how do you know where we live? <laughs> Scary. Um, another great way you can support us now in a um, sort of direct monetary sense is on our Patreon. We have uh, a Patreon up at patreon.com slash podcast, and there you can help support the show for as little as a dollar a month. What are we watching next week, Ben? So next week, Sarah, we are seeing the second of two Nazi German horror films. Uh, so we're sort of staying in this part of the country. Oh, joy. In this part of the world for a while. Uh, it's a film called Farman Maria. It's directed by Frank Visbar. And it's starring uh, Sybil Schmitz, who we last saw in Vampire. Cool. I guess? We'll see. All right, folks, we will see you next week, Creatures of the Night. Bye. Bye.